Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are challenging our thought process, removing perceived obstacles, and finding love from within as we eliminate perfection from our expectations. Is your self-love conditional? When I achieve this or that, I can revisit the love I have for myself, but not before. Are your conditions reasonable and achievable, or will the love you have for yourself never be realized? Let's be honest with ourselves today, because denying yourself love from within is preventing you from sharing authentic love with others. Everything starts and ends with you. Might sound like a lot of responsibility, but hear me out. The way you look at the world and your relationship with it is entirely personal. The ideas you choose to believe and identify with will shape how you operate in it. That's why this journey of self-discovery is all about you. You are the self this journey is all about. Ready to open your mind as well as your heart? Self-love is the self-help buzzword of the decade. It's painted, screen printed, embroidered, written about, posted, shared, and podcasted all over the planet. But what is it? And how does one partake? How many self-help buzzwords or sayings trigger an immediate response with you? Breathe. Keep calm. Carry on. Don't sweat the small stuff. Choose kindness. Be mindful. Let go. Most seem meaningful and are definitely a friendly reminder, but if you don't know what they mean and how to apply them, then they're just words. You don't know what you don't know. So if you're curious, if you would like to feel more accepted and loved by yourself and others, isn't it worth the journey? I was too busy worrying about everyone else to worry too much about my own personal development. Now, on the surface, that sounds gallant, but it's not. My worry was more about control and this misperception that I was more responsible for everyone than I actually was. Because of this warped way of thinking, I spent a lot of time investing my mental and physical energy on those who would have benefited way more from just figuring it out on their own. Professionally, I excelled, but personally, I didn't take the time to get to know myself and what I truly wanted or needed. You are made up of many glorious parts and endless personas, and they all need your attention. This might sound like something else to add to your plate, and you're right. You need to carve out time for yourself sooner rather than later. Giving to yourself will help you more effectively give to others. As we strive to create balance in our lives, it's important to explore and extinguish this idea of perfection. Understanding it and its hold over you will help the pace of your journey from the need to be first and fastest to taking the necessary time you need. Anna Sandu gives us some insight into how cultivating feelings of self-love can sometimes be challenging, found at medicalnewstoday.com. 
Why is self-love important? You might ask. For many of us, self-love might sound like a luxury rather than a necessity or a new age fad for those with too much time on their hands. Ironically, self-care and compassion might actually be needed most by those of us who work too hard and who are constantly striving to surpass ourselves and grasp that shape-shifting fantasy of perfection. Most of the time, we're being too hard on ourselves. We do it because we're driven by a desire to excel and do everything right all the time. This entails a lot of self-criticism and that persecutory inner voice that constantly tells us how we could have done things better. This is a hallmark of perfection. Studies have shown that perfectionists are at a higher risk of severe illnesses, both physical and mental, and that self-compassion might free us from its grip. Therefore, perfectionism and self-compassion are inextricably linked. Most of us in the Western world have been raised to believe that perfectionism is a great quality to have. After all, being obsessed with perfect details leads to perfect work. And this personality trait gives us the opportunity to humbly brag during job interviews. Hmm. In reality, however, perfectionism is bad for you. Not just not ideal or harmful when excessive, but actively bad. A shorter lifespan, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, eating disorders, depression, and suicidal tendencies are only a few of the adverse health effects that have been linked with perfectionism. Recovering from heart disease or cancer is also harder for perfectionists, with this trait making survivors as well as the general population more prone to anxiety and depression. So, what can we do to move away from perfectionism? First of all, acknowledge that it's bad for you. Beating yourself up over a little error gradually chips away at your sense of self-worth and makes you less happy. And you deserve better than this. of Kristen Neff, a professor of human development at the University of Texas in Austin, love, connection, and acceptance are your birthright. In other words, happiness is something that you're entitled to, not something that you need to earn. Even the United Nations adopted a resolution recognizing that the pursuit of happiness is a fundamental human goal. Also, you should try to resist the temptation to beat yourself up for beating yourself up. Paul Hewitt, a clinical psychologist in Vancouver, Canada, and author of the book Perfectionism, A Relational Approach to Conceptualization, Assessment, and Treatment, links the inner critic harbored by perfectionists to a nasty adult beating the crap out of a tiny child. When you've spent years cultivating this inner bully, you develop an unconscious reflex to put yourself down for every minor thing, no matter how ridiculous or absurd. From missing a deadline to dropping a teaspoon on the floor, perfectionists will constantly give themselves a hard time over the most unexpected things. So criticizing yourself for criticizing yourself is not uncommon. Thirdly, you can start cultivating some much-needed self-compassion. You might think that self-care is a case of you either have it or you don't, 
But luckily, psychologists insist that is something you can learn. Self-compassion and self-love are largely used interchangeably in specialized literature. Research shows that having more self-compassion builds resiliency in the face of adversity, helping people to recover more quickly from trauma or romantic separation. It also helps us to better cope with failure or embarrassment. But what is it exactly? Drawing on the work of Professor Neff, Sabara, and colleagues, define trusted source self-compassion as a construct that encompasses three components. Self-kindness, treating oneself with understanding and forgiveness, recognition of one's place in shared humanity, acknowledgement that people are not perfect and that personal experiences are part of the larger human experience, and mindfulness, emotional equanimity and avoidance of over-identification with painful emotions. Self-kindness entails being warm and understanding towards ourselves when we suffer, fail, or feel inadequate, rather than torturing ourselves with self-criticism. Easier said than done? You might think so, but luckily, the same researchers who worked hard to study and define the feelings have also come up with a few useful tips for enhancing it. By combining mindfulness with self-compassion, Professors Neff and Grimmer have developed a technique called mindful self-compassion training, which they have tested in clinical trials with heartening results. In the words of the researchers, self-compassion says, be kind to yourself in the midst of suffering and it will change. Mindfulness says, open to suffering with spacious awareness and it will change. The program comprises various meditations such as loving-kindness meditation, or affectionate breathing, and the informal practices for use in daily life, like a soothing touch or self-compassionate letter writing, which have all been shown to help study participants develop the habit of self-compassion. According to the researchers, practicing these techniques for 40 minutes every day for eight weeks raised the participants' levels of self-compassion by 43%. The mindfulness exercises that one can do to develop self-compassion are various. One simple exercise involves repeating the following three phrases during times of emotional distress. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is a part of life. And may I be kind to myself. In her book, Self-Compassion, Professor Neff details many more useful mantras and guides that readers can use to develop on their own. Also, her website, selfcompassion.org, offers a wide variety of similar exercises. Dr. Helen Wing, from the Center of Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and colleagues have also developed a range of similar exercises that you can access if you feel a bit skeptical about the benefits of mindfully repeating mantras to yourself, you may benefit from knowing the research that backs them up. Such mindful exercises in self-compassion have been proved to lower levels of stress hormones, cortisol, and increase heart rate variability, which is your body's psychological ability to deal with stressful situations. Listening to yourself can mean two things. First, Paying attention to how you internally talk to yourself is crucial for learning to cultivate an intimate feeling of self-love. 
Writing to yourself in a compassionate tone can help. In her book, Professor Neff asked the readers to ask themselves, what type of language do you use with yourself when you notice a flaw or make a mistake? Do you insult yourself or do you take a more kind and understanding tone? If you're highly self-critical, how does that make you feel inside? She explains that often we are much harsher to ourselves than we would be to others or than we would expect others to treat us. So, to replace this harsh inner voice with a kinder one, you can simply notice it, which is already a step towards quietly subduing it, and actively try to soften it. Finally, you can try to rephrase the observations that you may have initially formulated quite harshly in the words of a kinder, more forgiving person. Or you could try writing a letter to yourself from the perspective of the kind, compassionate friend that you've been to others, or from the perspective of a compassionate friend. A second reason why listening to yourself is important is that during times of emotional stress, asking yourself the question, what do I need? And listening mindfully to the answer can prove invaluable. As researchers point out, simply asking the question itself is an exercise of self-compassion, the cultivation of goodwill towards oneself. But it also is worth bearing in mind that what do I need sometimes means that an emotionally overwhelmed individual should stop meditating altogether and respond behaviorally to his or her own emotional distress. For example, just by drinking a cup of tea or petting a dog. Knowing what you need in that moment can be the challenge and the reward. Imagine feeling frustrated and unfulfilled, but you can't figure out why. In fact, maybe you don't even have to imagine it because you're feeling it right now. You search and search for something or someone to give you what you're missing only to be disappointed and sometimes in a more complicated situation than you were before. You slough off that feeling justifying it by convincing yourself it's just because you're so busy with everyone else and if they could just get their act together, then you could spend some time on yourself. Pipe dream. Do you now see the flaws in that thinking? Not yet? Okay, stay with me. To bring this idea off a throw pillow and into reality, let's dig in a little deeper with a thought-provoking line of questioning. Maria Conley prompts us with self-discovery, the most enriching journey you'll take, found at newwayscenter.com. Ann Landers says, know yourself. Don't accept your dog's admiration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. Maria shares, growing up, I learned to associate academic achievement with self-worth. That was the message. You have worth if you get an A, and you don't if you don't succeed. With wisdom, I've come to learn that this message was faulty. I can still get satisfaction from taking classes and learning, but these days I practice kindness and self-love to deepen my self-worth. To want to get to know yourself from the inside, not through others' expectations, is a radical act of love. To be genuinely curious about you, what you like, love, prefer, aspire to, is the beginning of the most beautiful journey you will ever take, 
the journey of self-discovery. Lucille Ball said, love yourself first and everything else falls into line. You really have to love yourself to get anything done in this world. Do you really want to depend on luck or happenstance to shape your life? I urge you to be the designer of your life. You can do this by suspending judgment and practicing mindfulness and living with intention. Consider this. All designers use curiosity and questions to discover new things. They can't allow preconceptions to cloud their thinking. You can do the same. I invite you to answer the following questions with complete honesty. There are no wrong answers. Whatever you answer will tell you something if you pay attention. Enter this journey with the intent to deepen your knowledge of yourself as you are right here, right now. Along the way, you'll meet and make friends with your past self and bridge the gap to your future self. Are you ready? I'm going to give you just a second to grab a pen, click it on or take off the top, grab some paper. Here we go. Of what am I most proud of in my life? And why? What activities, thoughts, and people bring me deep inner joy? And why? What actions or thoughts do I default to when I'm tired and stressed? Why? When something or someone makes me unhappy, do I passively stay, leave, or work to make it better? Why? What fears hold me in a bad situation, job, or relationship? And why? Where does my limit of its possible end? Why? How do my beliefs limit me? Why? How do my beliefs expand me? And why? When I have an inner struggle, do I ignore or lean into it and learn from it? Why? What moral compass do I use to identify my highest core value? Why? What other uncompromising values do I have? Why? What values am I willing to compromise under adversity? Why? How do I feel about money and the way it shapes my decisions in life? Why? What relationships have changed and are changing my life? Why? How have my pets impacted my life? Why? Whose lives have I changed just by being alive? Why? How do aging and mortality affect my thoughts and feelings? And why? What kind of legacy am I building for future generations? Why? How do I want others to perceive me? Why? What gives purpose to my life? Why?
Of all these questions, do you know which one is most important? It's the question, why? The questions what and how give you facts. The question why makes you dig deeply into your emotions and thought processes to find the reason. Also remember to observe and ask yourself, why? Why am I thinking this way? Why am I feeling this way? Why did that happen? Why did she say that? Why did he do that? Not only will you understand yourself better, you'll also deepen your ability to understand others. Here's an idea. Initiate a personal system of keeping a few pages in your journal bookmarked and dedicated to adding and answering these questions on a regular basis. This will keep your journey of self-discovery vibrantly alive. Many great explorers of the past started their journeys with a specific goal in mind. Find the fountain of youth. Discover a new trade passage to the east. Did they find their goals? Mm, Most did not. Instead, they found what was really there the good and the bad. Did that make their discoveries worthless? Not at all. They were priceless because it expanded knowledge and understanding that they and others could build upon. The same thing can be said for your journey of self-discovery. You might expect to find X, but you actually find Z. That's a win because you found your truth. Now you can work with it and enhance the wonderfully brilliant, fascinating, lovable, capable person you are. So where are you in your journey of self-discovery? I like that she suggests answering these questions often. This is a concept we tend to lose sight of. We are changing every day and depending on your current journey, maybe every hour. As you find out more about yourself, you evolve, and as a result, your likes, needs, desires, and goals will change. This means you need to be open to this concept. The journey never ends. But instead of feeling like a detour or the next exit, let that excite you with renewed motivation. It also isn't a destination, so the rewards aren't waiting at some end, but they're all along the way. Each time you learn something new, make room for it and explore the nuances even further. When I embraced my personal love of people, I wanted more. Professionally, I've always been in sales and marketing, so people are a big part of my everyday. But personally, I never had much time to nurture relationships beyond my core group. I am extremely social, so where it might seem like I know everyone, I only truly knew a select few. Since my revelation, I've dedicated myself to connecting, learning, supporting, and encouraging my relationships with people, and it has been one of the most rewarding discoveries. Unlike the worry and responsibility I felt before, today I simply embrace share, learn, and grow. I meet people where they are, love them for who they are, and commit to fully mutual give-and-take relationships. At psychlive.com, I found a guide to finding yourself that I think will be helpful no matter where you are on your journey. The greatest and most important adventure of your life is discovering who you really are. Yet so many of us walk around either not really knowing or listening to an awful inner critic that gives us all the wrong ideas about ourselves. 
We mistakenly think of self-understanding as self-indulgence, and we carry on without asking the most important questions we'll ever ask. Who am I, really? As Mary Oliver put it, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Finding yourself may sound like an inherently self-centered goal, but it is actually an unselfish process that is at the root of everything we do in life. In order to be the most valuable person to the world around us, the best partner, parent, etc., we have to first know who we are, what we value, and in effect, what we have to offer. This personal journey is one every individual will benefit from taking. It's a process that involves breaking down, shedding layers that no longer serve us in our lives and don't reflect who we really are. Yet it also involves a tremendous act of building up, recognizing who we want to be and passionately going about fulfilling our unique destiny, whatever that may be. It's a matter of recognizing our personal power, yet being open and vulnerable to our experiences. It isn't something to fear or avoid, berate ourselves along the way for, but rather something to seek out with the curiosity and compassion we would have towards a fascinating new friend. With these principles in mind, the following guide highlights seven of the most universally useful steps to this very individual adventure. Number one, make sense of your past. In order to uncover who we are and why we act the way we do, we have to know our own story. Being brave and willing to explore our past is an important stepping stone on the road to understanding ourselves and becoming who we want to be. Research has shown that it isn't just the things that happen to us that define who we become, but how much we've made sense of what happened to us. Unresolved traumas from our history inform the ways we act today. Studies have even shown that life story coherence has a statistically significant relationship to psychological well-being. The more we form what Dr. Daniel Siegel talks about as a coherent narrative of our lives, the better able we are to make mindful, conscious decisions in our present and represent our true selves. The attitudes and atmosphere we grew up in have a heavy hand on how we act as adults. As Dr. Robert Firestone, author of The Self Under Siege, wrote, as children, people not only identify with the defenses of their parents, but also tend to incorporate into themselves the critical or hostile attitudes that were directed toward them. These destructive personal attacks become part of the child's developing personality, forming an alien system, the anti-self, distinguishable from the self-system, which interferes with the opposings and ongoing manifestation of the true personality of the individual. Painful early life experiences often determine how we define and defend ourselves. In short, they bend us out of shape, influencing our behavior in ways in which we can hardly be aware of. For example, having a harsh parent may have caused you to feel more guarded. 
We may grow up always feeling on the defense or resistant to trying new challenges for fear of being ridiculed. It's easy to see how carrying this uncertainty with us into adulthood could shake our sense of identity and limit us in different areas. To break this pattern of behavior, it's valuable to acknowledge what's driving it. We should always be willing to look at the source of our most self-limiting and self-destructive tendencies. When we try to cover up or hide from our past experiences, we can feel lost and like we don't really know ourselves. We may take actions automatically without asking why. In his book, Mindset, The New Science of Personal Transformation, Dr. Siegel wrote an interaction with his son in which he'd lost his temper. After reflecting on the incident a bit later, Dr. Siegel realized that his emotional outburst had more to do with feelings he had as a child toward his brother than with his perception of his son today. He wrote of the experience, I realize once again how many layers of meaning our brain contains and how quickly old, perhaps forgotten memories can emerge to shape our behavior. These associations can make us act on automatic pilot. By engaging in this type of thinking and being willing to face the memories that arise, we gain invaluable insights into our behavior. We can then start to consciously separate from the more harmful influences of our history and actively alter our behavior to reflect how we really think and feel and how we choose to be in the world. Number two, differentiate. Differentiation refers to the process of striving to develop a sense of ourselves as independent individuals. In order to find ourselves and fulfill our unique destinies, we must differentiate from destructive interpersonal, familial, and societal influences that don't serve us. To lead a free life, a person must separate themselves from negative imprinting and remain open and vulnerable. In his work with hundreds of individuals struggling with this exact process, Dr. Firestone has developed four essential steps for differentiation. Step one, break with harmful internalized thought processes like critical and hostile attitudes towards self and others. Step two, separate from negative personality traits assimilated from one's parents. Step three, Relinquish patterns of defense formed as an adaptation to painful events in one's childhood. Step four, develop one's own values, ideals, and beliefs rather than automatically accepting those that you've grown up with. Seek meaning. Viktor E. Frankl famously said, life is never made unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. Frankel himself survived the most horrific of circumstances, living in a Nazi concentration camp. In many ways, his very survival depended on maintaining the sense of meaning. In order to find ourselves, we must all seek out our personal sense of purpose. This means separating our own point of view from other people's expectations of us. It means asking ourselves what our values are, what truly matters to us, then following the principles we believe in. Studies show that the happiest people seek out meaning more than just pleasure, and that people are generally happier when they have goals that extend beyond themselves. Finding yourself in your happiness is therefore a venture inextricably linked to finding meaning.
think about what you want. There's a tendency in life to focus on the negative. Many of us fall too easily into victimized thoughts and complaints about our circumstances and surroundings rather than orienting ourselves toward positive goals, strategies, and solutions. Put simply, we think a lot about what we don't want instead of concentrating on what we do. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Knowing what we want is fundamental to finding ourselves. Recognizing our wants and desires helps us realize who we are and what's important to us. Hmm, this may sound simple, but most of us are, to a varying degree, defensive against our feelings of wanting. We may feel guarded because we don't want to get hurt. Wanting makes us feel alive and therefore vulnerable in the world. To truly live means we can truly lose. The experience of joy and fulfillment can be met with feelings of anxiety and on a deeper level, profound sadness. Getting what we want can also make us feel uncomfortable because it represents a break from our past. It can make us feel guilty or spark a sea of self-critical thoughts. Who do you think you are anyway? You can't be successful, fall in love, feel relaxed. In order to honestly discover what we want in life, we must silence this inner critic and drop our defenses. As an exercise, when you're having a lot of negative thoughts like, I don't want to do this or that, we can try to shift our thinking to what we really do desire. If we are fighting with a partner and thinking, you never hear what I say, you don't care about me, we can instead think about or even communicate on a level that genuinely conveys our end goal. I want to feel listened to, seen, and loved. Changing our outlook in this way makes us feel more in touch with who we are. It strips us down to our most basic desires without the unnecessary layers of defense that divert us from our core values and our truest selves. It's time you recognize your power. When we know what we want, we're challenged to take power over our lives. No longer are we engaging in a spiral of negative thinking that tells us all the things that are wrong with the world around us and all the reasons why we can't have what we want. Instead, we're accepting ourselves as a powerful player in our own destiny. Harnessing our personal power is essential to both finding and becoming ourselves. Personal power is based on strength, confidence, and competence that individuals gradually acquire in the course of their development. It's self-assertion and a natural, healthy strive for love, satisfaction, and meaning in one's interpersonal world. Knowing our personal power means recognizing that we have a heavy effect on our lives. We create the world we live in. To create a better world means shifting our outlook, feeling empowered, and rejecting a victimized point of view. Dr. Firestone has further illustrated six aspects of being an adult. Number one. Experience your emotions, but make rational decisions when it comes to how you act. Number two, formulate goals and take the appropriate actions to achieve them. Number three, be proactive and self-assertive rather than passive and dependent. 
Number four, seek quality in your relationships. Number five, be open to exploring new ideas and welcome constructive criticism. Number six, take full power over every part of your conscious existence. It's time you silence your inner critic. To be an adult, we must also break the ways we self-parent, either by criticizing or soothing ourselves. This destructive thought process can be made up of a judgmental attitude that tells us we aren't good enough to succeed or don't deserve what we want. Or a soothing-seeming attitude that tells us we don't have to try or that we need to be taken care of or controlled. By recognizing and standing up to this internal enemy, we learn not to be parental or childish in our lives, but to find our real selves and know our strength and ability. As a mindfulness expert, Dr. Donna Rockwell points out, to generate a state of upliftedness that makes everything else possible, that creates the go-for-it spirit we crave, is to subdue the doubting mind by disarming negative thoughts. Practice compassion and generosity. Mahatma Gandhi once said, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. In addition to improving our mental and physical health and lengthening our lifespan, generosity can enhance one's sense of purpose, giving our lives more value and meaning. Studies even show that people get more joy from giving than from getting. If we want to find our way in life, it's beneficial to practice generosity as a mental health principle and take on compassionate attitudes towards ourselves and others. People are generally happier when they create goals that go beyond themselves. As you go about your life, try to maintain what Dr. Siegel refers to as a coal attitude in which you are curious, open, accepting, and loving towards yourself and your personal journey. Know the value of friendship. We do not choose the family we're born into, but often we assume that this family defines who we are. While as children, we have little say in where we spend our time, throughout lives, we can choose who we want to be with and who we want to emulate. As adults, we can create a family of choice. We can seek out people who make us happy, who support what lights us up, and who inspire us to feel passionate about our lives. This family may, of course, include people we're related to, but it's a family we've chosen, a core group of people who we consider true allies and friends. Creating this family is a key component in finding ourselves, because who we choose to surround ourselves with has a profound effect on who we relate to in the world. Having a support system that believes in us helps us in realizing our goals and developing on a personal level. Ooh, that inner critic. She's a nasty bugger, always creeping in when you're feeling on your game, that little voice that knocks you down a peg or two and then reminds you of all the things you've overlooked. Wrinkles, fat, lack of talent, past failures, naysayers, self-doubt. Sometimes, when she's louder than me, I simply say out loud, Stop! You don't know what you're talking about. And then I insert a mantra or I speak positively over myself. I look great. I'm confident. I am capable. I am loved. 
I have love to give. I am special. I am willing and I am ready. Take back the control. And just like your mind invited in the inner critic, ask them to leave and don't worry about being polite. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they are not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, delight in your journey taking special care to celebrate the self-revelations along the way. Striving for perfection will prevent you from moving forward and enjoying the constant evolution and love that is unique to you. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone's room until the path was clear. That's when I found.